I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Laura Ketzel. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by VP and Principal Analyst Martha Bennett to discuss how closely blockchain's fate is tied to cryptocurrency. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. So while blockchain serves as a key component of the cryptocurrency market, we know that blockchain is not only for cryptocurrency, right? So blockchain is not cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency is not blockchain, but how are these two things closely, even though they're closely connected, how help us understand how closely they are connected and how they're different? Okay, let's see whether we can find the short version here. And with that, I think I'll turn it around a little bit and essentially put blockchain networks into two very broad categories. Um, One of them, which I will call permissionless or public, and the other one I'll call permissioned. Permissionless and public um, probably gives away what I'm about to say next, and that is anyone can play. That's those blockchains that you've probably heard about, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and those are, and there are dozens of them. And those are the ones that are closely tied to cryptocurrency. In fact, in the case of Bitcoin, it is identical, but cryptocurrencies run on those public blockchains. And you can have on something like Ethereum, multiple cryptocurrencies. So yes, those cryptocurrencies depend on those public blockchains. Anyone can play, anyone can do whatever they they can technically do on those blockchains. The same technology and the same code can also be used for so-called permissioned blockchains. And as that term gives away as well, it not everybody can play. That's why we often also talk about enterprise blockchain in that context, but I'll come back to that. Meaning that in order to participate, you need to have somebody's permission to do so. And it can get more granular as well, whether you can just look at things or whether you can actually write data to those blockchains. And there are some, without going down a technical rat hole here, there are some that actually use the same code base as Ethereum, but they do not use a cryptocurrency and they don't use the same consensus mechanism because they are permissioned. And then there are also a number of different um, software protocols that were specifically developed for permissioned blockchains aimed at enterprises. And the reason I'm, I didn't entirely equate enterprise blockchain with permissioned blockchain is that some enterprises are actually looking at potentially public blockchains, but say 99% of today's enterprise blockchain projects are on those permissioned networks and there is no cryptocurrency anywhere near them. And Martha, to follow up on that, when we're talking about the kinds of permission blockchains that one typically sees in enterprise blockchain projects, the to be crystal clear about this, I don't think any of those go anywhere near cryptocurrency, do they? They do not go 
anywhere near cryptocurrency. They certainly do not. Where things become a little bit confusing sometimes is that everybody's probably heard the acronym NFTs by now, non-fungible tokens. I'm talking here about those NFTs on public blockchains representing ugly looking simians in various poses or whatever it may be. Um, that's not what we're talking about because, and the reason I bring this into it, NFTs are actually a very useful technical construct in that they represent assets. So on an enterprise blockchain that, for example, has supply chain track and trace as a use case, you can use an NFT to represent those goods, that container, whatever it is you're tracking. It's got nothing to do with public blockchains. It's not something that you can trade on a, on, a, on some marketplace or whatever. It's, NFTs are at the root of it purely a technical construct. One of the principal areas of interest in the permission blockchain world has been uh, has been using to asset tokenization to do different kinds of things, right? So I thought it might be good to have you explain why that's interesting and what a lot of enterprises are trying to do with it. When we talk about asset tokenization, we talk about an entire spectrum, starting with tokenizing existing financial instruments like securities, bonds, whatever it may be, right to the other end of the spectrum, a container ship, racehorses, um, fine wine, and everything in between. And clearly, the moment something has been tokenized, it becomes tradable. And that indeed is the motivation behind the tokenization of some of the assets that I've just mentioned, which would other, otherwise be quite illiquid or where it would be quite challenging really to manage shared ownership, like managing the shared ownership of racehorses or um, some some other asset. In, and in fact, I recently um, um, got um, came across a very interesting case where a very wealthy individuals who, individual who collects um, vintage cars um, inquired with their wealth manager whether they could help this individual tokenize their fleet of vintage cars so he could release some liquidity because he had a bit of a cash crunch. So he didn't want to sell his vehicles, but he wanted to give other people an ownership stake in them, get some money today, and then either buy them out again, or maybe, you know, at some later point, they could be sold. So that that's more the sort of tradable end. What's also interesting is that NFTs actually make it easier to manage um, shared ownership, for instance, because you can really trace transfer of ownership. There isn't what's the latest version of the contract. Yes, the contract itself will be not on chain. It'll be somewhere in a in a in, in a secure folder, but there will be a hash. There, there will be a link to that contract. So you always know what the latest version of a particular legal contract is. So there aren't any disputes. You can, um, for example, also assign properties within the NFT so that it can't be resold without um, three people signing it, for example, or the, all kinds of conditions that are attached to the sale of an NFT, who it can be sold to, under what circumstances. So there are all kinds of things that you can do. 
And what you can also do, and that is an also that comes what we come to that here is that for some of the things you can do with non-fungible tokens, you might actually need a regulatory change to make them permissible. And that's um in many countries, you still have legislation that stipulates that a share can only be sold in a unit of one. And that's quite clear where that comes from, because once you start tearing paper shares in half, that's not a very good idea. Um, that physical necessity clearly has gone away. But unless the law changes, you can't fractionalize a share. And yet, when you look at some very expensive shares, um, a lot of people are locked out from getting shares in certain companies because the price of a single share is very high. So that's that would be another um, area where you could say, yeah, that's, that's where tokenizing something makes sense. And I think I also mentioned then from the non-tradable side, the representation of an asset for traceability purposes, the, the advantage of the token being, as non-fungible suggests, that you can't mess with it. You, it's very, very difficult to, to tamper with it, and so it provides that extra assurance. What the technology, of course, can't do is ensure the integrity of the physical asset. Despite everything that has happened in the cryptocurrency markets, there are still many brands who are committed to their NFT strategies because they really feel that there is um, an opportunity for a different way of engaging the consumer. Clearly, for some brands, that is a very narrow target audience, and that's today's cryptocurrency users. But there are also brands who want to abstract away from the underlying complexity of managing your own NFTs and all of that. And because NFTs are programmable, it's not just that they can represent an asset, they can also give you, for example, access rights. So you could buy the NFT and um, you get some, you, you can, um, part of that NFT entitles you to collect um, a physical item from a store, a limited edition hoodie, whatever it may be. If you've paid a little bit more for your NFT, it may give you access to a virtual event or a physical event where the NFT is in effect your entry ticket. So that's those are the areas that companies are exploring because of the programmability and the way in which they they can be controlled. There are a lot of, and they run on public blockchains. Yes, of course, you can have that NFT collectible on a permissioned blockchain as well, but then it becomes less accessible. And that's why there are, that's one of those areas where we remain in experimentation, what's more appropriate to really protect the consumer from some of the vicissitudes of a public blockchain, but then keep them in a more enclosed world and don't not have quite so much opportunity to exchange the NFT that you have with others? Or, um, you know, where, where does it go? Is there a place for NFTs on more enclosed environments? We already have that as well. Some of the best known NFT collections run on their own blockchain. And there are people who like it and people who complain about it. <laughs> And of course, there is also that anything on a public blockchain does involve cryptocurrency. And I almost went off on the track. Now, there are implications for companies that want to go down that route, but I don't know whether you want to go down that route. 
given that there are a bunch of companies that want to be that are committed to those NFT strategies where they're putting those where those assets exist on public blockchains, I think it makes sense to go down that particular route. So tell us a little bit about what the what the potential pitfalls are there if you're uh, you know, and if you're an upscale apparel company who wants to make who wants to make NFT who wants to make NFTs of that type, well, there there, there are two pitfall buckets. One is the NFT itself, but I think you're picking up on my comment about cryptocurrency. The main aspect there being that companies need to decide whether they want to have really have all control themselves, in which case they themselves will need exposure to the cryptocurrency, meaning having it on their account somewhere, or just outsource all that to somebody else. And I've observed a number of companies who started out by saying, oh, we can do that ourselves. You know, what's so hard about buying some Ether or whatever and holding it in a wallet? If it's a proper company project, obviously it has to go through the company books, just like any other company expenditure. Well, but cryptocurrencies, despite their name, they're not currency. In fact, they fail all three tests for a currency. They're not a store of value because of their volatility. They're not a unit of account because they're always expressed in terms of another currency. And they're not a universally accepted payment instrument. But that to one side, the way they are classified, let's just take the US because that's a huge market. In the US, a cryptocurrency is regarded as an intangible asset under IFRS, meaning that if you ha if the um, currency goes down, you have to immediately record the losses. And if it goes up, you can't recognize the gains until you sell the currency. And that's just a complication in your accounting that many treasurers just say, no, let's not go there because, and it is also, you know, how, how do you deal with something that may have more decimal points than your accounting system can cope with? So that's just as a little footnote, some companies said, oh yeah, we'll just get a wallet. And then they either have to do it, you know, have to find a different way of doing it experimentally Experimentation usually means somebody does it and you pay them back their expenses, but experimentation is not an operational project. And with the NFTs themselves having just alluded to the issues, the, the main issue is just being aware that the N, an NFT really is just a digital receipt. No, let me correct myself. It is more than just a digital receipt in that it's programmable. So let's call it an, a, an intelligent receipt. However, the asset itself is not on the blockchain, which has all kinds of implications that I'll leave it to you whether you want to go further into that. But that's important to note that the asset itself is not on chain. And what brands also need to understand that they need to make it very, very clear what rights to the asset they actually give to um, the buyer of the NFT. So with your simians, you actually have the commercial rights to your ape. You know, you can print a t-shirt and make money off it. Um, in other cases, and I won't mention names now, but there's recently um, movies as NFTs. What you get for your NFTs is revocable streaming rights. In essence, you don't get anything that you're permanently entitled to. So what I'm going, the direction I went into there is because that's one of the myths that are still, or one of the mythology narratives that's still out there very strongly that NFTs transform ownership. They do not. To follow up on that, because a, a lot of the sort of pre-Simian or I guess contemporaneous with Simian uh, NFT, an NFT hype has to do with 
uh, digital artwork itself. And then, and the big question, and I remember spending a lot of time trying to figure out what on earth do I actually own? Does the art belong to me? Are those rights exclusive? And so on and so forth. Because it's a far from it's a far from clear question. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, just so people have a sense of what happens. It's a far from clear question. It's a great question. And I would also say it's a very unresolved question with a lot of gray areas. And we also need to distinguish here between ownership right, copyright, and IP right, all of which need to be reflected. And we already see a lot of friction. And yes, we already see lawsuits and everything because there's a lack of clarity and because the NFTs themselves very often transcend borders. You know, they can, not all of them can be paid cross border, uh, can be bought cross border, but most of them can. And then it depends on the jurisdiction, which jurisdiction actually applies. And a lot of people, frankly, misunderstand what they're getting. Sometimes it's very, very clear what, and some companies, you know, companies who are, are longstanding experts at managing their IP, dare I say Disney, um, they, they understand how to manage their IP. So when they license um, com Marvel comic characters to a third party to sell as NFTs, when you go into those terms and conditions, it is absolutely clear what rights Disney has conferred to you, you know, which essentially is, is a license that you know, to, to look at them and maybe display them as part of your profile, whatever it may be. There are also many that don't make it clear enough and that's before we've even talked about what you know some of the resale rights may be or indeed another one that i throw in is that hey what happens if um if the the, the server on which the asset is stored goes down or gets disconnected from the internet. In fact, let me give you a real example. There are some people who purchase tickets for the Coachella Festival as NFTs. Some of those um, Coachella NFTs now sit on an FTX server, which is no longer accessible because FTX is in bankruptcy. So what happens to that? So going back to that, currently there are no obligations on the part of anyone actually to keep your digital artwork accessible. I've probably thrown out enough there, but this is really one where I, I laugh sometimes when people say, oh, blockchains will make lawyers redundant because you can put it all in a smart contract. Well, firstly, who would write that smart contract? It needs a lawyer. And then when the smart contract is under dispute, then it needs lawyers twice over. And with what I've just described, you need lawyers three times over. And the earlier you bring them in as a brand, the better. <laughs> Piggybacking off the some lawyer somewhere needs to write that smart contract, let's talk about what can go wrong with smart contracts themselves, because we've had a number of interesting examples of that in the wild over the last year or so. Specifically with smart contracts, it's actually one of the biggest security issues or um, in public blockchains. I actually very bluntly call smart contracts a novel attack vector. <laughs> And the reason I call it a novel attack vector is that's not something that companies are really used to, that yes, clearly, if somebody hacks into your corporate network, they get control over your application. 
what people are not used to is because a smart contract in, in many ways is a mini application, it's got rules in it. It may be very primitive. It may be just be an if this, then that, but it runs on a public blockchain with um, mostly fully visible code. Anybody can download that code, inspect it at your leisure, at their leisure, and then see what they can trigger in that code. And that can mean triggering it a payout or triggering a payout of the entire treasury. <laughs> and that's indeed been something that's been happening time and time again. And this is one of those, uh, how shall we say, misunderstandings about security on blockchains in general, because a lot of people talk, you can't, you know, they're, they're more secure, because if something goes wrong, the consensus mechanism would, you know, etc. And yes, it's fair to say that if you went in and tried to change the code of that smart contract, then that would probably be rejected by the working mechanism of that blockchain. So from that perspective, the principle works. However, if you find a bug or a feature in that code that you can trigger to do things that the developers of that code hadn't intended, like transferring all the money to you, then that will be immediately replicated across all nodes because nothing suspicious is detected because you're not altering the code. You're just getting the, the code to execute in a way that wasn't intended. But that is perfectly permissible within the parameters of the code. And that is, I think, one of the issues that really, really takes people by surprise sometimes. What I'm trying to get to is that there are actually lots more security issues with those with blockchains in general but in particular public blockchains of course because you don't have that protection of the permissioning layer or anything so you've mentioned uh, something that our astute listeners may have been wondering when we were going to actually get to in that in, in that last bit which is web3 and so in addition to at the beginning at the beginning here we've clarified how does blockchain relate to cryptocurrency, permission blockchain versus public blockchain, etc.? But we should probably talk about how Web3 relates to all of this, just so people can triangulate how all these things fit together when they see them out there in the world. It's a very good question, and I'll give you my take on it. And the reason I say it's my take, because I know that not, not everybody agrees. <laughs> And in fact, the first bit I say is because there is a, a very, very powerful narrative out there that equates Web3 with a metaverse and that we at Forrester collectively disagree with. Yes, there will be overlaps and there already are, even though the metaverse as such doesn't exist, but metaverse precursors do, there will be overlaps, but you do not need Web3 for the metaverse. Web3 today essentially equates to public blockchains. And if we look at the principles behind Web3, they're actually all very laudable. <laughs> you know, giving control back to the user, um, not having power concentrated in the, in, 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 in the hands of too few, openness, transparency, and so on and so forth. But I don't want to veer too far away from your question. That's Web3 today is essentially public blockchains. Out, outside of NFTs, there isn't that much that's actually available that 
can bestow genuine utility. Yes, there are experimentations for, you know, you name it, whether it's a social network or music sharing or film, movie streaming, e-commerce, you name it. There is there There's a dozen at least of experiments on public blockchains to replicate that in the Web3 environment. I have seen nothing at scale yet. Web3 today remains largely a self-referential system of financial engineering, if I'm really brutal about it. That doesn't mean it has to stay there. That's one of the, where I would say, opportunities that maybe the crypto crash has brought with it, that maybe there are actually fewer opportunities for exploitation and rent-seeking, and we can move on to maybe figuring out how to realize some of those ideals of Web3. At the moment, I'm seeing a bit more of the downside because, and and yes, in many ways, Web3 as a term cloaking public blockchains partly came about because public blockchains got a bit of a bad name as being of a, a wild west and unsafe environment for um, unwary consumers. With all of that as the backdrop, what is your outlook for, for blockchain, be it public blockchain, permissioned enterprise? I mean, that's a big question, but are we going in the right direction? I think with Web3, I've just pointed to the risks that we might not. But let me just be a little bit more upbeat on it because I've I've actually recently had some briefings with some very interesting companies who are actually building new trust models. And they're building new trust models in full recognition of the fact that somewhere you need to have a trust ecosystem that certifies that fine wine as real and that certifies the racehorse as live and existing. And and yet at the same time, have a different type of governance model that allows us to both in people's personal lives as well as in enterprise ecosystems deal with things differently simply because we the world has become a lot more digital and things will become even more digital we now have an entire generation entering the workforce who are digital natives and that changes people's behavior and when you also look at all the things that we bemoan as being wrong with the current environment there are opportunities to do it better and what cheers me is that there are companies both on the enterprise blockchain side as well as in startups in the broader context that are looking at a different approach and that look at it strategically who are fully aware that this may take years in some cases decades to bring to fruition Great conversation as always, Martha. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks ever so much for having me. That was a great discussion. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.